section twenty seven of lives of the queens of england volume six by agnes and elizabeth strickland this librivox recording is in the public domain elizabeth chapter seven part three on saturday night very late elizabeth returned to warwick and because she would see what cheer my lady of warwick made she entered unexpectedly into sir thomas fisher's house where finding them all at supper she sat down a little while and after a slight repast rose again leaving the rest at supper and went to visit the good man of the house mr fisher who was at that time grievously vexed with the gout but chose to be brought out of his chamber into the gallery to pay his duty to her majesty and would have made an attempt to kneel to her but she prevented him and comforted him with such gracious words that forgetting his pain he was on horseback to attend her majesty on the following monday on her return to kenilworth meantime however she took up her abode in warwick castle where it pleased her on the sunday to have the country people come and dance before her in the court of the castle where she looked out from her chamber window which pleased them and appeared to make her very merry on that day the french ambassador and monsieur de la mole having received dispatches from their own court with letters from the royal family for her came to wait upon her there in her last letter elizabeth had intimated that before the negotiations proceeded further it was absolutely necessary that she should have a personal interview with her youthful suitor but the wily queen mother being perfectly aware that unless elizabeth could be induced to make a blindfold bargain by plighting herself before she saw the prince the match would never take place opposed the projected meeting as derogatory to the dignity of her son for him to come over to be looked at at the risk of being mocked with a rejection elizabeth in reply to this objection said she entreated that neither the king of france the queen mother nor the ambassador would believe her to be capable of such baseness as to speak of an interview with a prince of his high rank if she were not disposed to marry him that it was long before she could overcome her reluctance to the wedded state and now she had gained that victory over herself she was disposed to use it for the purpose of strengthening the bonds of friendship between the royal house of france and herself that she desired the said interview as much for the satisfaction of the duke as for her own to the end that he might not be compelled to espouse a woman whom he could not love and on her own account she wished to see if she could be loved by him and also if the disparity of his age and what had been reported of his face were objections that might be overcome and if she could not have that satisfaction then she must beg us to tell the king and his mother that the matter was at an end after pronouncing these words the queen remained silent and pensive then the two subtle diplomatists endeavored by the following flattering logic to persuade her that the disparity in age between herself and their prince amounted to nothing seeing that it was only the trifling difference of nineteen years and as her majesty from her charms of mind and person appeared younger by ten years than she really was and monsignor the duke in consequence of his fine manly figure and good sense had anticipated the other nine years in his age and looked full seven and twenty they were placed on an equality as for the interview the king and queen of france were most anxious that it should take place 
if they could be certain of her majesty's remaining in the mind to marry but as yet she had only given doubtful and unsatisfactory answers to the great discontent of the duke and as she had seen his portrait and heard by many of her own people what he was it was necessary that she should return a more decided answer and at any rate that she would sanction another conference with the lords of her council on the subject on this she raised her head and replied with a more agreeable and cheerful countenance that she was content that the conference should take place if only to prove to the king of france how greatly she valued his friendship after insinuating that she felt more favorably disposed towards the marriage she withdrew says la mothe very gaily to her chamber telling leicester that they were to return and sup with her and invited us herself when we came back we found her playing on the spinet and she continued to play at our entreaty and she played again to please the sieur de la mole at supper which was a sumptuous feast she gave us before all the company as many marks of favor as we could desire after she had drank to me she sent the cup with what remained in it to me that i might pledge her and wished much that she could exchange such agreeable messages with my lord the duke she drank also to the sieur de la mole with many other pleasant demonstrations and courtesies out of compliment to his master when supper was concluded at about nine in the evening a fortress that was built up in a meadow under the windows of the castle was assailed by a party of the youth of the court and defended by another party for a display of fireworks which was a very fine spectacle and we remained with the said lady till about midnight to see the end of it there is a quaint and very elaborate description of this pageant in the black book of the warwick corporation by which we learn that there were two forts of wood and canvas erected on the temple ditch at convenient distances for assailing each other with squibs and fireballs one of the forts being manned by the townspeople clad in such harness as could be obtained by them to maintain a warlike show the other was defended by the Earl of Oxford, with a band of the young gentlemen of the court. And between the forts were planted twelve or fourteen field pieces, and as many mortars, which had been brought from the Tower of London, at the expense of the Earl of Warwick, with which a most especial uproar was raised, in imitation of storming a citadel. Then the Earl of Oxford and his company, to the number of two hundred, shot up calivers and arquebuses in return, and cast out divers fires. Terrible, says the record, to those who had been in like experiences, valiant to such as delighted therein, and strange to them that understood it not, for the wild fire falling into the river Avon, would for a time lie still, and then again rise and fly abroad, casting forth many flashes and flames, whereat the queen's majesty took great pleasure till she found her good town of warwick was in some danger of being burned down by this device for her honor and glory for at the last a flying dragon casting out huge flames and squibs lighted upon the fort and set fire to it for its subversion it chanced that a ball of fire fell on a house at the end of the bridge and set fire to the same so that the good man and his wife being both in bed and asleep were with great ado saved but the house and everything in it were consumed and the flames spread to some of the adjoining dwellings which were with difficulty extinguished by the exertions of the earl of oxford 
Sir Folk Greville, and others of the courtiers and townspeople. This combustion might be good pastime for the idle gallants of the court, but it was no fun for the people of Warwick, who were in almost as much alarm and danger as if they had been bombarded by a hostile army, with the fireballs flying about the town and falling on the roofs of houses, and into their courts and backyards. Four houses in the town and suburbs were on fire at once, and it was next to a miracle that no more mischief was done. As La Mothe Fenelon does not mention these accidents, it is probable that he might imagine the conflagrations were intended as part of the show. The next morning the queen sent for the poor old man and woman, whose house had been burned, and comforted them with many gracious words, and by her grace's bounty and that of her courtiers, the sum of twenty-five pounds, twelve and sixpence, was given towards the losses of the sufferers, which, notwithstanding the relative value of money, was rather a paltry subscription, considering the high rank of the parties. On the following day, the subject of Her Majesty's marriage was again discussed, and she declared, that after having heard the opinions of her council, she found herself in a greater perplexity than ever, for though they all wished her to marry, they agreed with her, that it was impossible to advance any further in the treaty, till she should have seen what manner of man the Duke of Alençon really was, and for herself she was determined not to judge of him by any other witness than that of her own eyes. She was sure some ill would come of it if they married without some previous affection, such as is usually acquired by sight. And she swore, by her creator, that the doubts she felt made her fear and repent of having gone so far. The following day, Her Majesty and the French envoys returned to Kenilworth on horseback in company, sometimes as they went following the chase, and between whiles pursuing the subject of the matrimonial treaty to our great satisfaction, says the deluded La Mothe, who appears at that time to have been actually persuaded by Elizabeth that she was bent on marriage, and might be flattered into wedding the unsuitable spouse they offered her. He writes volumes to Charles the Ninth and the Queen Mother, relating his private conferences with Elizabeth, and the proceedings of her council while at Kenilworth, on the subject of this alliance, assuring them that the Queen is better disposed towards it than she has yet been. He expresses his satisfaction, in particular, for the good offices which he considers have been rendered by the Earl of Leicester in the negotiation, and repeats his opinion that the latter should be rewarded with a wealthy French heiress of the highest rank, in return for his services. The clear-headed Burley condensed the actual substance of all the frothy compliments, affections, and mystifications used by his royal mistress in her discussions with the noble French diplomats into the following brief entry, which is inscribed by his own hand in his private diary. August 22nd, answer given to La Mothe at Kenilworth, when he came to move marriage for Francis, Duke of Alençon, younger brother of the French king, that there were two difficulties, one for difference of religion, the other for their ages, but yet that the articles moved in his brother, the Duke of Anjou's case, might serve for him. Two days after this oracular sentence was inscribed by Burley, the massacre of St. Bartholomew was perpetrated in Paris. The tidings of this direful tragedy were received in England with feelings of generous indignation, which rendered all ranks of the people ready to take up arms, 
to avenge the murdered victims of the treacherous and profligate catherine de medicis and the abhorrent instruments of her atrocity the very name of a frenchman was regarded with horror and la mothe fenelon and his suite felt themselves the objects of popular detestation though innocent of the slightest knowledge of the crime that had been committed in the blood-stained metropolis of france no one could be more deeply mortified at the transaction than la mothe himself who does not scruple to express in plain terms to his royal master his grief and annoyance at what had taken place and the disgraceful light in which it had placed the monarch and people of france in the opinion of the english elizabeth at first declined giving audience to the luckless ambassador on whom the task devolved of making the most plausible story he could in extenuation of this dreadful business after taking three days to consider whether she would see him or not she at length decided on granting him an interview at woodstock where she was when the intelligence reached her she received him in her privy chamber in the presence of the lords of the council and the principal ladies of her court all of whom were like herself clad in the deepest mourning a solemn silence prevailed on his entrance and after a brief pause the queen advanced ten or twelve paces to receive him with a grave stern countenance but with her wonted courtesy and leading him to a window apart from the rest she said something apologetic for having delayed his audience and demanded of him if it were possible that the strange news she had heard of the prince whom she so much loved honored and confided in of all the world could be true la mothe told her that in truth he had come to lament with her over the sad accident that had just occurred to the infinite regret of the king who had been compelled for the security of his life and that of the queen his mother and his two brothers to put down the sedition and traitorous plots of those who had confederated against him many high and horrible treasons and that what he had done was as painful to him as if he had cut off one of his arms to preserve the rest of his body elizabeth inquired with eager curiosity into the particulars and lamented that the king had not proceeded against the admiral and his adherents according to the laws which punished treason observing that although she had been unable to accept his majesty for a husband she would always love and revere him as if she were his wife that she was infinitely jealous of his honor and believed that it was neither according to his disposition nor from any premeditation of his own that these murders had happened but from some strange accident which time would elucidate the convenient term accident was afterwards adopted by elizabeth herself on an occasion when as in the case of the royal culprits of st bartholomew it implied an equivocating denial of a crime too black to be acknowledged or defended by the perpetrator the french ambassador notwithstanding the trepidation with which he entered the presence of elizabeth and the chill which her first reception had given him took courage before the audience ended to present her with a love letter from the duke of alencon and she received it willingly and read it with apparent satisfaction she said however that it had been her intention to send the most honorable ambassador that had been seen in france for a long time to show her respect for the most christian queen on the occasion of the birth of her first child which was soon expected but that now she should take care that neither leicester nor burleigh went 
knowing how much their deaths were desired by the persons who were the instigators of what had taken place in Paris. On leaving the queen, La Mothe had to go over the same slippery ground in explanations to the lords of her council, who were far from taking the matter as easily as their mistress had done. They would not hear of accidents or mistakes, but declared that the recent massacre was, without doubt, the most enormous crime that had been committed since the death of Jesus Christ, and loudly condemned the treachery and cruelty of those by whom it had been planned and executed. In a letter to the king, his master, dated September 29th, La Mothe describes the mortifying situation in which he and all his countrymen were placed in England, and says, that no one will speak to him but the queen, who treats him with her accustomed urbanity. Not more atrocious, however, was the ruthless fanaticism which prompted the butcher work by which the day of St. Bartholomew was forever rendered a watchword of reproach against Catholics, than the murderous spirit of cruelty and injustice, which led the professors of the reformed faith to clamor for the blood of the captive Mary Stuart, as a victim to the manes of the slaughtered Protestants. Sandys, Bishop of London, in a letter to Burley, enclosed a paper of measures, which he deemed expedient for the good of the realm, and the security of his royal mistress at that crisis, beginning with the startling article. Forthwith, to cut off the Scottish Queen's head. Burley endeavored to prevail on Elizabeth to follow the sanguinary counsel, telling her that it was the only means of preventing her own deposition and murder. It is easy at all times to persuade hatred that revenge is an act of justice. Elizabeth was beset by tempters of no common plausality, men who had always a scripture text in readiness to quiet the divine witness of conscience against crime. She had resisted their previous solicitations to take the life of her defenseless captive and placed her refusal on high and noble grounds, but her resolves, whether in good or evil, were easily shaken. Her passions were stronger than her principles, and were excited without difficulty by persons of cooler temperaments than herself. Sooner or later, the inflexible Burley always carried his point with his stormy mistress. He had terrified her with plots and rumors of plots, till he succeeded in convincing her that she was in the utmost danger from the murderous machinations of Mary Stuart, and that it would be desirable to deprive her enemies of a rallying point by putting that unfortunate lady to death. Elizabeth shrunk from the idea of staining her hands with royal blood, but, like many others, had no objection to sin by deputy. A darker and more treacherous expedient than either a private or a judicial murder in her own realm was concocted between Burley, Leicester, and herself as the most convenient method of ridding herself, as Mr. Titler observes, of her hated and dangerous prisoner. The Scotch had sold her fugitive rebel, the Earl of Northumberland, into her hands, that she might execute her vengeance upon him, and Elizabeth, in return, proposed, not to sell, but to resign their injured sovereign, into the cruel hands of Morton and the Regent Mar, to be dealt with in the way of justice words which were tantamount to Cromwell's private memorandum, to send such and such persons to London to be tried and executed. 
there was indeed to be the mockery of a trial but then the children or near kinsmen of morton and mar were to be put into the hands of the english queen as hostages that trial or not the execution of mary was to take place within four hours after she was given up to their tender mercies the details of this iniquitous pact are clearly and succinctly related by mr titler and the actual documents may be seen in the state paper office the instructions for killigrew to whom the arrangement of the great matter as it was significantly termed by the diplomatic accomplices was committed are in burley's own hand the muniments of history afford not a more disgraceful document nor has the light of truth ever unveiled a blacker mass of evidence than the correspondence between killigrew and burley and leicester during the negotiation mary had however ceased to be an object of alarm to the rebel lords and even her deadly foe morton the wily accomplice in darnley's murder would not undertake the office of the queen of england's hangman without a fee why should he and the regent mar sell their souls for naught they demanded money of the parsimonious elizabeth a yearly stipend withal no less than the amount of the sum it cost her majesty for the safe keeping of her royal prisoner the dark treaty was negotiated in the sick chamber of the guilty morton with the ardent approbation of the dying knox and after nearly six weeks demur the regent mar gave consent but was immediately stricken with a mortal illness and died at the end of twenty-four hours morton insisted on higher terms and more than that an advantageous treaty and the presence of three thousand english troops under the command of the earls of huntingdon essex and bedford to assist at the execution otherwise he would not undertake it the last condition could not be conceded for elizabeth's share in the transaction was to be kept secret and for the honour of the english character it is doubtful whether three thousand men could have been found willing to assist at so revolting a tragedy eagerly as burley thirsted for the blood of mary stuart he dared not venture the experiment but in his bitter disappointment at the failure of his project he wrote to leicester that the queen must fall back upon her last resource for the safety of herself and kingdom god send her majesty continues he strength of spirit to preserve god's cause her own life and the lives of millions of good subjects all which are most manifestly in danger and that only by her delays and so consequently she shall be the cause of the overthrow of a noble crown and realm which shall be prey to all that can invade it god be merciful to us some natural doubts must be felt by those who have traced the long hidden mysteries of these murderous intrigues whether the person by whom they were devised could have believed in the existence of that all-seeing judge whose name he so frequently repeats to his accomplice in this cowardly design against the life of a persecuted and defenceless woman the worthy matthew parker archbishop of canterbury to whom elizabeth was very dear not only as his sovereign and the bulwark of the protestant church but as the daughter of his unfortunate patroness anne boleyn wrote to burley a marvellous account of the sayings of a strange body as he called some insane foreign incendiary whom the mayor of dover had apprehended and conducted to london for using expressions touching the queen leicester and hatton such as mr mayor durst not commit to paper but was ready to whisper to the premier if he would give him the opportunity 
the strange body had a brother in calais who had also said that he trusted to hear of as many throats cut in england that winter as had been in france and that within the twelve month he doubted not but henry's bones and maistress elizabeth's too should be openly burned in smithfield notwithstanding all this perilous talking the strange body had been discharged and allowed to return to his own friends being in all probability a wandering lunatic not worth the trouble of subjecting to the torture the recent outrages on protestants in france while they furnished elizabeth's cabinet with an excuse for advocating the murder of mary stuart rendered the negotiation for the queen's marriage with a catholic prince most distasteful to the people of england but though apparently at an end they were still carried on sub rosa between elizabeth and the court of france through the agency of monsieur de la mothe on the eleventh of september the queen mother wrote to that statesman apparently in reply to his recommendation of the english quack who had undertaken to eradicate the traces of the smallpox i have seen the physician penna but the visage of my son alanson is much amended and does amend every day but i must be well certified that the said physician uses medicines such as i can see by writing what he does so that it is evident he will do no harm the said doctor can easily practice upon a page and if it does well he can use his remedies on my son such were the private communications between england and france when elizabeth seemed publicly indignant for the massacre of st bartholomew when la mothe fenelon communicated this interesting piece of information to elizabeth she said that she was astonished considering the great love that catherine had always shown for her children that she had not sooner endeavoured to remove so great a disfigurement as the scars which marred the countenance of the duke of alenon two or three days after this conversation elizabeth herself was attacked with the same malady which had left such frightful traces of its ravages on the visage of her unlucky suitor the whole court were in a state of alarm and leicester again took upon himself the office of watching her sick-bed till the favourable nature of the symptoms relieved her ministers from the alarming apprehension of their being deprived of their beloved sovereign and the yet more painful contingency of seeing her sceptre pass into the hands of mary stuart the disease however passed lightly over elizabeth and she thus describes it in a letter to the earl of shrewsbury who not without cause had expressed great anxiety to be certified of her majesty's state red spots began to appear in our face like to be smallpox but thanks be to god the same vanished away she concludes in her own hand my faithful shrewsbury let not grief touch your heart for fear of my disease for i assure you if my credit were not greater than my show there is no beholder would believe that i had been touched with such a malady your faithful sovereign elizabeth regina when elizabeth gave audience to the french ambassador she thanked him for his attention during her late malady of the smallpox and told him that the last time he was at windsor she had the stomach ache from taking a little mithridate but she had given him permission to see her now because he would be able to give their majesties of france a better account of her illness adding playfully that she believed when monseigneur the duke came to hear of it he would wish that she had had just enough of it left on her face to prevent them from reproaching one another 
the complacent ambassador replied in a high-flown strain of compliment that the king of france monseigneur the duke and all connected with that crown desired entirely the preservation of her surpassing endowments regarding her beauty no less than those which adorned her greatness and that they would have infinite pleasure in learning from his next dispatch that she was so perfectly cured of this malady that it had not left a vestige or trace on her countenance his excellency added a piece of gratuitous flattery on his own account which from its excessive grossness would have been regarded by any lady less vain than elizabeth as downright impertinence that for his own part he rejoiced no less at the accident than the cure for it was a sort of malady which showed that her youth was not yet past nor ready to pass away for a long time and that it had so greatly improved her charms that she could never be in a better plight for matrimony than at present nor more likely to fulfil the hopes of the nation by continuing her illustrious line therefore he besought her no longer to delay her own happiness but to come to a favourable decision on the proposal of the duke she rejoined with a smile that she had not expected that his excellency had come to speak on that subject just then but rather to announce the accouchment of the most christian queen for already there was a report in london that she had borne a fair son and she prayed to god that it might be so the report was unfounded for the queen of france brought forth a daughter on the twenty seventh of october la mothe fenelon waited on elizabeth to announce to her the birth of the little princess to assure her of the continued devotion of the duke of alenon to inquire her intentions with regard to his proposal and to inform her of the sentence passed by the parliament of france against the late admiral and his confederates bricmont and cavanier the last two had been executed in the presence of the king his mother brethren and the king of navarre by torchlight the same day that the young queen of france had made the sanguinary monarch charles the ninth the father of his first-born child elizabeth was already well informed of a fact that had filled every heart with horror and disgust and in reply to the ambassador she alluded to the circumstance with dignified and deserved censure she said that his majesty could not have wished more for the safety of the queen and her happy delivery than she had done that she could have desired that his felicity had been rendered more complete by the birth of a dauphin but nevertheless the little princess would be very welcome in the world and she prayed god to give her happiness equal to her illustrious rank and descent and as she felt assured that she would be fair and good she regretted that her royal father should have polluted the day of her birth by so sad a spectacle as that which his majesty had gone to see in the grieve and called upon the ambassador for an explanation of that circumstance heartily ashamed of the conduct of his sovereign and too honest to defend it la mothe fenelon only observed that the day had been marked by some evil as well as much happiness and that his master would not have assisted at such an act if he had not had the example of other great kings on similar occasions in respect to the duke of alenon elizabeth said that she had not yet received a reply to the last proposition that had been made by her ambassador for which she had long waited and that the picture of the state of france as represented by him filled her with extreme horror for it seemed that everything was done against those of her own religion as for the condemnation of the admiral and the others 
if their ruin were the safety of the king of france no one could be more glad than herself that they were dead end of section twenty seven